teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teachers. Good evening, everyone. Thank you all so much for coming to CTU tonight to be a part of our first live podcast. So thank you all for being here. And what a great podcast it will be as we talk about um, black history and black teachers and the um, and how it relates to um, CPS system. So thank you all so much. My name is Andrea Parker, and I am a 15-year veteran with CPS. I am a middle school teacher. I work at Robert Fulton Elementary, and I am one of the co-hosts of the CTU Speaks podcast. And I'm going to introduce my co-host. I'm Jim Starnos, also a co-host of CTU Speaks, 18-year veteran high school teacher and now a field rep for CTU. And it would be great if you all would subscribe to CTU Speaks Please. with an exclamation point at the end. CTU Speaks. Yes. All right. On any of your podcast platforms, subscribe there. You can do it right on your phone right now while we're talking. You know, we won't be mad if you're on your phone. It's okay. And now we are going to turn it over to the moderator for tonight's discussion, mm -hmm. Cook County Commissioner, middle school teacher, Brandon Johnson. Hey, how about that? Thank you, um, uh, Andrea and uh, James, also known as Jim. Um, are they are they wonderful though? It's a, what a dynamic duo they are. Let's show them some love, Chicago. So we appreciate their work and what they mean to our overall movement. Thank you all for being here with us this evening. We are uh, at the mighty, mighty, mighty headquarters of the Chicago Teachers Union. All right. And so do us a huge favor though, if you're listening, uh, share the broadcast to pull people a little bit closer to this conversation uh, for uh, the handful of people who might be watching and engaged who don't think this is an important topic, uh, and you are um, subscribing to white supremacy, we want to hear from you as well. Uh, we will have some clapbacks for you as well. So um, we're welcoming all uh, folks tonight to engage. I do want to just, before we um, introduce this dynamic panel, and thank you all again for spending uh, a Wednesday evening on such a very important topic, something that we've been uh, pushing and fighting um, in Chicago for some time now. But we do have a couple of leaders that are here with us tonight. The Vice President of the Chicago Teachers Union, Stacey Davis-Gates, and the President of the Chicago Teachers Union, Jesse Sharkey, are both here. Could you all make them feel welcome? That's okay. Jesse, can you just wave and say hello? So we thank both of you for your leadership um, and what you mean for our overall movement. And just for the record, both of them are social studies teachers. Uh, the world transforms through the lens of individuals who understand history. Um, so tonight, you all, let's jump into it because I don't have a, a, a whole lot of time tonight. We have a dynamic panel. Um, I know I'm shouting a little bit, so hopefully you can hear me in the back. But to my immediate left, um, we have a dynamic brother. His name is Charles Preston, born in California, raised in Chicago, um, a Southsider, um, is an organizer. Uh, he's a space maker, not to be confused with a way maker. Uh, for all of you folks who go to church, that's a very black church joke there. But he's a space <laughs> This podcast is going bad already. Sorry. He's got a bachelor's degree in arts and uh, African-American studies. Uh, he has been published in the Chicago Defender. Um, we'll hear more from him, but he's a former communications co-chair for BYP 100. Charles Preston, y'all give him some love. Next to Charles, we have a dynamic sister. Her name is Nina Hike. Wanted to make sure that everybody knows 
that she has 24 years teaching in the Chicago public school system at Curie. Studied biology and chemistry. Uh, UIC. She's a Chicago native. All Gail Gard's a CPS student. She's been everywhere. Ward Elementary or Sullivan High School. Dynamic sister. Let make Nina feel really good. Give her a nice round of applause. Right. Nina. Sorry, it's Nina. Sorry about that, Nina. Okay. And so next to Nina is my dear sister and friend. Um, she goes by Monique Rideau-Smith, but I call her Dr. Monique Rideau-Smith, a diet hunger striker, a middle school teacher, a researcher, just an incredible activist, leader, organizer, now on leave doing research for the IFT. My dear friend, sister, Dr. Monique Rideau-Smith. And then finally... She's a mother of four. She's got grandchildren, y'all. Three master's degree. She served our country, United States National Guard veteran, serving 11 years. She's been a postal worker for 11 years. And here's the thing. She also has found 16 years teaching in the Chicago public schools. Y'all make her feel real good. Latanya McSwine at Morgan Park High School. And so, as you all know, there's been just a, a very precipitous decline in black educators, a very intentional attack um, by the interests of corporations to attack the very fundamental of what I consider one of the greatest inventions that America's ever experienced. It was W.E.B. Du Bois that said that public education at the expense of the state, after all, is a Negro idea. And so the very ideal of public accommodations and public schools comes out of the struggle, the pain, but also the hope and the dream, uh, dreams of our ancestors. And so the individuals who really helped propel public education forward were those who were committed to actually teaching. So I'm going to start with the educators, if that's okay. And so if you all could just take about 90 seconds or so, uh, I'll start with Nina. Um, there's been a lot of talk about just not just the decline of black educators, but the attack on black educators. But something that's not discussed a lot, Sister Nina, is the joy and the hope that black educators bring into public education. Why are you a teacher? I'm a teacher. I would ask you why you are black, but God had a big plan for your life. So that's very obvious. But a black educator, why teach, Nina? Well, I wanted to teach because um, I enjoyed science. And I also wanted to, you know, give my students uh, somebody that really is enthusiastic about science and that also, you know, it's not a lot of black science teachers so that they can, you know, that I can help build their confidence and that they'll know that, you know, they also uh, can go into science and be successful. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, Latanya uh, McSwan, you're still in the classroom, is that right? I am. And so with all the things that are going on, uh, there are black educators who are being forced out, pushed out. You're still here. Why are you still teaching? I still believe. I still am naively um, in belief that things can change. Things will change. Um, uh, to piggyback on what Nina said as far as going into teaching myself, I went out to corporate America. So from being an officer in the military to going out to corporate America, I was all about computer science. I did organization. So I actually had a chance to work with students who wanted to learn. So I didn't go into teaching as a first career not knowing. I went after having worked with students and knowing the passion and the desire they had to learn about computer science and to bridge that digital divide. So I went in there and I got excited about doing it. I'm still excited about doing it. It is unfortunate 
all of the problems that we have, but I am a firm believer in CTU. I am a fighter. I file whatever I need to file to make sure that they do what they need to do so that we can still give the students what they need. And that's us believing in them. Yeah. Thank you, Latanya. So, Dr. Rideau, um, not only are you a, uh, a teacher, but you're a middle school teacher, which, as you know, that's where we share our commonality. We are a very special type of teacher. Uh, when you are a middle school teacher, um, you could have gone into many different directions, particularly someone that uh, pursued your Ph.D., what was it about middle school or being a teacher um, that was so compelling for you? Well, I love just the natural curiosity of young people and especially of young black and brown people. Um, when I went into the classroom, I always thought of it as my organizing space. Like this is the space where we are going to organize and where we're going to have the Malcolm X, the Ida B. Wells. Um, those are the folks who I am looking at in my classroom, right? They are going to be the ones who transform our society. So I always looked at education as political and as transformative. And so that's what brought me into the space with young people. And they never disappointed because that is what I saw from, from those young people. And I think we talk a lot about um, often what black teachers bring to black young people. Um, but for me, it also was about what black young people brought to me. Um, it was a reciprocal relationship. It absolutely brought me life. Um, and since I've, I've been out of the classroom, I find myself aching and always trying to invite myself into young people's spaces because I miss the life and the vigor um, of young black people. And so, uh, again, I think it's absolutely a reciprocal relationship. It's a reason why black teachers go into the schools that we go to and teach predominantly black youth because of what they also bring to us, um, that familiarity and that comfort. And I knew I could go into my classroom and be Monique and that I could teach the way that I wanted to teach and that they would understand and they would love me and I would love them unconditionally. And so that is what brought me to teaching and, and keeps me doing what I'm doing now to make sure that we can continue to have that kind of, of love and transformative education within our public schools. Yeah. Is this making sense to you all in the audience so far? Some of the reasons, is this uh, very familiar of reasons why some of you all have gotten into teaching? If you're listening to us on Facebook right now, and you want to weigh in on this conversation of why you became a teacher, um, by all means, uh, submit those thoughts. So Charles, you've heard from educators you know, one of the things that jumped out at me, well, there's actually three things, building folks, bringing confidence, curiosity and organizing. And so you've you've pretty much done all of that. Um, so for you, um, as a black man, as an organizer, talk to us about the value of black educators and what it means for the larger political goals uh, for our people. So I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't even pursued education wouldn't continue to college if it wasn't for black educators. Uh, I grew up in CPS, um, K through eight, Dunn Elementary School, 109th and Union, um, Gwendolyn Brooks College Prep. My neighborhood school was Finger. My cousins went there. Uh, my other cousins went to Julian. Um, and so, yeah, my trajectory was was created um, basically from black educators, first starting with my mother at, in the home, but then outside of that, uh, walking into these buildings and having Black History Months with a black staff and what they impart and the wisdom they imparted on me, um, telling us about the system in the classroom and how it affected them coming up and what they were 
what they were allowed to do um, within racist policy and whatnot. I had a teacher that experienced Jim Crow. Uh, I went on to college and majored in African-American studies. Why? Because a black man was in the classroom and said, Charles, you would be brilliant at this. I don't know why you're majoring in psychology. I was majoring in psychology because I was just getting good grades in it. Didn't have a passion for it, really. I'm like, if this comes easy to me, I'm going to do it. Until black educators sat me down and said, man, like you are really passionate about your history, your people. African-American studies program would love to have you. His name was Dr. Kelly Harris. Um, and that's that started my trajectory. And even through college, there were at points in which I wanted to drop out, like um, because of like financial straits uh, and mental issues. But I had a black male teacher there um, to keep me on the right path, saying I've been there. I've, I've seen those hurdles. I've seen what you how, how you maneuver out in these streets. Um, and just gave me the confidence. And I think that's that's what you want students to have is confidence in themselves to like um, surpass obstacles. And teachers are instrumental to that cause. So I really don't understand why in a city that's, you know, over 60 percent black and brown, uh, we have a problems with having black and brown teachers in the classroom. So, no, I think that's a question, a very powerful statement that, that you made, um, which I think is important that let's just go there for a second. Um, you talked about some of the, the the mental health issues that you experienced as an educator and what it meant to have black educators around you. Can we just explore that for a little bit? Because I think that's important um, because so you have these studies that indicate that when students do not have black educators, particularly black students, um, they are overdiagnosed. They are overprescribed. Um, but yet there are some real mental health challenges that we have. Charles, could you just explore a little bit with us the difference between being prescribed and being supported? And this is nothing against the need for some folks to actually have like a prescription. And what I mean by that, I don't necessarily mean medication, but being diagnosed with mental health challenges. But you talked about, at least from what I'm gathering from you, is the type of support that you received. What was going on? in your life at that moment, if you don't mind being transparent and vulnerable. And what was it from the black educator that, that brought you back into a place of stability? Because before you answer that question, this is about to get loaded here, is that there is real trauma that black students are experiencing, not just in the city of Chicago, but all over the country. And what's happening is that we're being ignored, uh, we're being mocked, ridiculed, or most importantly, I think the, the biggest issue is we're being punished for the trauma that we're experiencing. So that's why I wanna explore that, that what, what you alluded to about having the mental support from a black educator. Well, um, yeah, living in Chicago, um, on the south side of Chicago in the hundreds and being in CPS, you lose people. And that hurts. A lot of people don't know how to address it or you, you don't really know how to cope with it. But one thing you do know, um, or one thing I always done is uh, go back to community and um, places I feel comfortable with, people I feel comfortable with, people who have been through those same hurdles. And so like the educator I was speaking about, he was, uh, he was in Philadelphia. At the time I was going through um, uncertainty about the whole school thing period. Um, I believe my mom was facing foreclosure. I was, uh, yeah, she was facing foreclosure. I was like upset about that. 
um, yeah, just mental health issues. And at the time, I was like, I'm, I'm just going to drop out, become an activist, this radical community organizer, and just do my thing. And my professor came up to me, and he's been there. He was like, he re- used to organize with the, uh, like the African American, all, all, all people's African American Revolutionary Party. Um, back in the 80s, he was a, a victim of bru- a police brutality. Um, and he saw me, you know, being engaged in this Black Lives Matter movement. And he was telling you, I've been there. But after the protest, what happens then? You know, what happens after these organizing meetings? How will you support yourself? How will you keep going? Right. He says, like, you have a beautiful mind, a mind that can be put to use in the long term of people's struggles, local, national and even internationally. So why would you stop college at this point? You already done two years. Keep going. Um, And coming from him, that meant way more because. He's the one who introduced me to my major um, and he supported me in in a multitude of ways in terms of like uh, offering me job opportunities, um, really asking me questions beyond what we were talking about in the classroom. Sometimes I would stay after class. We would discuss things such as um, my housing situation, my family, um, black black men in general and white educational spaces. really important conversations. And so his, his words of wisdom, his words and kindness, you know, they were very sincere and, and genuine and I believed him. And, and I think that's one thing that is important. It's like believability. Like you want your students to believe in you. And that blackness brought credibility to the conversation. Of course it did. Because yeah. it was also the experience. Yeah. Thank you, Charles, for sharing that. So Nina, you mentioned your love for science and I appreciate that. But when I hear Charles's story, um, I know sometimes there's a balance between making sure that your love for the content comes across. But I would imagine what uh, Charles just shared, where you taught that this was this probably happened in your classroom as well, uh, where other concerns outside of uh, balancing equations and whatever science teachers do. (laughs) Clearly, I'm not a science major. Uh, What is that? The periodic table. Whatever, that stuff, the brilliant things that you all do. But as a black educator, did you find yourself in a position where the content um, did not necessarily supersede the living conditions in which your students relied upon your expertise for? Absolutely. Um, In my class, you know, it's just a community. And I basically talk to my students about, you know, paying bills, everything, right, Um, that they need to survive and not ignoring all of the students that are dying, right? So every year it's a kid, you know, getting killed and the students are mourning and, you know, you, I can't just teach chemistry and be like, oh, they're mourning, you know, let's get this chemistry going. No, we have to have a conversation about, you know, valuing black lives, right? And why black lives do matter. And why do we even have to say that at this point that they matter? And so, of course, in the middle of teaching chemistry, I take uh, breaks, right? And the kids are like, oh, like today I took a break. 
we went to the Black History Assembly, and one of my students, he's like, are we learning chemistry right now, Miss Psych? I was like, no, but we're going to sit here and learn about Black history, right? Because that's important, and we need to value it, and, and that's why we're here. You know, so I definitely, in between uh, teaching chemistry, I'm definitely speaking about my own experiences and connecting with students because if you don't connect with the students, you can't teach the students, right? So you have to connect with your with your classes individually outside the classroom. Uh, do they play sports? Are you going to be somebody that say, oh, I don't really like this sport? No, you you enjoy, you go to the basketball games, you participate, and you let them know that you are connected to them, not just through science, but you're a family. I told them, you're you're like my children. I, I don't even consider you students anymore, right? You're my children, and I'm there to teach you not just chemistry, but survival, to use the chemistry so you'll know that you can use this chemistry to change your community, to transform your community. What about food deserts, right? We can learn we can learn about food deserts by teaching molar mass, and we can say, you know, what's what's happening in terms of molar mass and foods and talk about carbohydrates and all that stuff. But we can also say, let's count how many uh, food, you know, places uh, that you can get healthy foods from. And let's talk about how your family, you know, you can't just put a whole foods and say, hey, here's this, this store now. Everybody go to it. It's no longer a food desert. No. Now you have to push for families to want to change their diet and say that, you know, let's Let's think about how to incorporate these healthy foods or making the healthy foods um, a little lesser, you know, so that we can afford to eat. Right. So I think that definitely for me, it's definitely not just about chemistry, but it, it does become a real challenge when you are a teacher and you are, you know, you know, just the intellectual respect um, as a black educator. I think that that's the biggest thing that it, it doesn't matter that I have a degree. You know, I'm constantly challenged about my intellectual uh, capabilities. And I tell students that that no matter where you go, um, you're going to be challenged on your intellectual capacity because some people just don't think you know it, right? So that's why I'm here. I'm here to tell you about this Black history and the struggle, but I'm also here to teach you this chemistry so that you can make it whatever you want to do with it, right? Now, so can, can we stay there for a second, though? Yeah. Because you, I think you gloss over something that I don't know if folks actually appreciate it. And I just want to make sure that we, we pull this out because you describe your relationship with your students as a Black woman um, less of a sort of this role as student-teacher relationship, but that of family. And what that reminds me of, and I'm not sure of other folks who are listening on Facebook, watching on Facebook, or those of you who are in our live studio audience, um, is that part of the work that we do as educators, particularly black educators, we love our students hard. Right. And so I think you, you were, you're kind of smooth past that. But I want to push you on that a little bit, because in the midst of you loving your students hard, you take on this role as big sister, auntie. And, and that's not necessarily in the common core standards. So so like, help our audience really understand what it means to love our students hard in a way that sometimes, you know, it's not something that I believe the system is, is not prepared or ready to embrace or the system doesn't even understand when you love our students as hard as you do. 24 years coming back every single day, 
I know because she a 24-year teacher, so you know she got like 300 sick days left because, you know, them old school teachers never took days off. They got 452 sick days. <laughs> but, you, I'm sorry, but you love our students hard. What does that really mean and what does that look like? Basically, um, you're an advocate, right? So they'll come t- talk to you about different circumstances that they're going through. So let's go there. Come on, let's just talk about it. Different circumstances. We're still being too vague. Okay, well, like, what in are, terms what are, of... Because I think we just need to know as black educators that when a student comes in, they want to know the study guide, you know, the question on the study guide. They're really coming to talk about other stuff. Like, what is that stuff that other teachers who aren't black may not necessarily have to have that... They don't have that burden. <laughs> so, for example, like, say a student um, came to me and, and she was struggling um, in her AP courses and she was saying that she, she didn't know if she fit into the class and um, all of the other outside things that she was going through. Um, she had lost her mom at a young age and, and um, you know, I talked about loss, you know, in my family. And so we kind of connected about her losing her mom and her still trying to value her education. And she'd been, you know, going from different, um, you know, uh, DCFS custody to this place to that place and just dealing with all those struggles and, and just, you know, wanted to just vocalize and, and share her story so that... Um, that you can understand, like, where she's coming from. Like, what what is she coming with when she walks in the door? It's not just the eagerness to learn, but she's coming. they're coming with heavy burdens. Um, and you have to be willing to bear those burdens. And it's tremendous, right? But, you know, you do. And you just keep pushing. And, you, you know, you have your time and you talk to them. So I think it's more so you're going to advocate for sure. You're advocating for classes, um, to, for them to take the high-level classes and, and know that they can make it. You know, and most of the time right now, recently, it's been more of the black male deaths that are happening um, and the students at, you know, the school um, dying and, and just having to deal with that loss and comforting students and not doing the lesson. And so I would say in recent times, it's been more of just talking about what's happening in the media, what's going on, um, why can't we wear our hair like this, why are we... Um, you know, being told how to wear our hair, why can't we wear our hoodies, you know, just all of those different issues that uh, black students face um, because they want to wear their hoodies. What's wrong with their hoodies? Um, it doesn't make their brain stop working. What's wrong if they have a hat, you know? So it's like all these things that, you know, that before you can teach, you got to, they, they want to debate about it and say, well, why can't we wear our headphones? Why can't we do this or that? And so it's like just those kind of debates and Showing them that, you know, what my perspective is. Because they'll ask you, they're like, what's your perspective on this? And so I'm, I'm going to be honest and tell them about it. Well, these, so, these are yeah. the cultural competencies that we're talking about when we push for more black educators. And Dr. Rideau, it's very obvious um, the way Charles has described it, what Nina has indicated. These are really political conversations. Um, there are studies that black students are more likely to be promoted and encouraged to take honors courses, AP courses, than non-black educators. I know I experienced this as a teacher as well at Westinghouse, encouraging my students to go into honors, to take the AP courses. But really, I think the part that, that Nina has indicated and what Charles has referenced is really having these political conversations. And that's unique, I believe, to black educators because our political consciousness is deeply tethered uh, to not just pain and struggle, but what that struggle means for our future. 
So, so I want your perspective on just all that encompasses the challenges of being a, 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 a black educator and how that transfers into political conversation and thought uh, within your classroom and your leadership. Um, so I think um, with what you're talking about, it really, for me, demonstrates the wickedness of how um, black teachers have been pushed out of the profession, right? Because as a history teacher, I liken it and think about um, colonization, right? And the snatching of black children away from black mothers that is historical. And so I see this time period in the same light, right? Because who loves black children more than black mothers, more than black fathers, right? And so, um, again, having those kind of conversations, having those connections, people, I, I can make those connections. I can make those connections because of my historical understanding and understanding the history of my people. I can come into classrooms and talk about the fact that, yes, we're talking about um, children um, from immigrant families being taken away, but people talking about how this is anti-American. This is not what America is about. And my students would say, but wait a minute, we've been doing, they, we've been doing that for a long time. They've been snatching children away, right? And so it's because we've had those historical conversations and because we look at, or I always started talking about present conditions that absolutely impact students, things like incarceration, um, things like um, all, all of the things that our students have to deal with, starting from there, but then showing that this is not something that is new. This is a continued attack on black people. And so the state that we are in now is, again, just another iteration of that. The push out of black teachers, again, is just an attempt to make yet another hostile space for black youth. They've already come into the community and decimated communities, right? Torn down public housing, those kinds of things to just pretty much to disperse and get rid of that communal feeling. And so for a lot of our students, the only place that they had that had that same stability is I know I can go to school every day and Miss Jones is going to be there or Miss Brown or, you know, Mr. Franklin is going to be there. And so now there has been an attempt to also create a hostile space there, too, to say, nope. Those teachers aren't there anymore. They were failing you, right? They were failing you because your test scores weren't high enough. Even though we don't look at the trauma that students bring to school, we standardize everything. We want to standardize outcomes, but we don't standardize inputs. And so having those kinds of conversations with students, I was having conversations with seventh and eighth grade students about why is it that you are tested the way that you're tested, but we looked at the way Arnie Duncan's children, we looked at where they went to school. We looked at where Obama's children went to school. We looked at where Rahm Emanuel's children went to school. And they, they, they would say things like, well, these schools sound like preschools because it was about curiosity and it was about experiential learning and it was about all these things. And I said, well, but how did you feel about preschool? They were like, oh, we liked school then, <laughs> right? And so, again, having them interrogate why is it, why are your lives the way that they are because Sometimes our students can normalize it because their lives have not been valued for their entire lives. This becomes a normal situation for them. And so allowing them to see that, no, somebody is making these decisions for you. Somebody are making somebody is making these decisions to to show that you aren't worth as much or you shouldn't have as much empathy. And so, again, having those kinds of conversations helps to light the fire to say, well, wait a minute. Right. We shouldn't accept this. So we are going to stand up and say and, and fight back. And that sometimes means, you know, that 
you being the authority figure in that particular space that they are now going to start pushing back on you. But I love that because that meant that now they were in a space where they felt comfortable enough to say, I don't agree with this. And so you should be able to explain to me why this is the way that it is. And those are the kind of young people that we really want um, out into the world. But that is not the, the education that those who are part of the status quo and part of the establishment, those are not the kind of young people that they want out in the world. Those who are going to actually push back and ask questions and be critical of, um, about their power and about their decisions. So for me, that was always the goal for me in my classroom is to get to a point where students felt strong enough and passionate enough to stand up and to say, we're not going. So Latanya, I want to pull you in this conversation, but Dr. Bordeaux, don't, don't go away just yet because, you know, something that you said that I think is actually important. In other words, what you're saying is that the push out and the attack against black educators is an attack against political thought and black liberation. Yes, for me. yes I'm at, is that what you're saying? I mean, I mean, look, I know it's like I'm just kind of repeating it, but, but, but you're also speaking directly to white supremacy. So when we talk about Absolutely. they, we're talking about Rahm Emanuel, who executed the biggest terrorist attack on black America that we've seen in a lifetime by closing 50 schools in one swath, right? Uh, 1,000, over 1,000 black students are still missing from the rolls. Like we literally have no idea where these black children are. Right. And we know that black teachers were disproportionately impacted by this. And you're saying that the type of conversations that you're having in our classroom, that this is actually um, reflective of how black educators engage. And so white supremacy, whether it be the Eli Broads, the Koch brothers, the Rahm Emanuel's, the Arnie Duncan's, that these individuals have demonstrated a great deal of animus um, towards black liberation. And one of the ways in which you attack black political thought and black political power is through the public institution of public education. Absolutely. Absolutely. S students are in our care for eight hours a day. That's a lot of organizing. Right. That's a lot of organizing you can do all day long. So how do you disrupt that? You disrupt that by saying, OK, we're going to now corporatize. Right. Education. We're going to have a steady stream of teachers in and out. People you can't build relationships with. You don't necessarily have respect for that. They don't respect you. And so if we just continue with this churn of teachers that are in and out, then we disrupt any kind of trust building, any kind of relationship building, any kind of organizing and power building. So I'm absolutely saying that this is a, a, a part of white supremacy and the push to make sure that critical liberate liberatory type thought is taken out of public education. So Latanya, I want to bring you into this conversation. You've been very patient um, um, down over at Morgan Park. And uh, one of the things though, I think it's important to note here is that especially when it comes to the standardization or the corporatization of public education, it's why there's been such a push to, to, to standardize, if you will, the public system, because critical thinking is something that uh, white supremacy has never wanted us to do. From us not being able to speak our language, to stay connected to our culture. Um, I always say that, especially when it comes to the bubble sheet, where our students are constantly being trained to answer questions and not ask questions, right? Um, because there's a whole different frame of political power when you are in a position where you can actually help develop the inquiry versus always being on the receiving end. But something that Charles said earlier that I think is actually powerful because your story I think reflects like all of this as a mother, as a grandmother, as an educator, as a public employee, um, that there is um, a level of fear 
um, that exists within the city of Chicago because of what black folks are experiencing. Um, as a public school teacher, as a public employee, particularly as a U.S. postal worker serving in the armed first forces, you've seen things here locally, you've seen things abroad. I would imagine delivering uh, mail up and down the streets of the city of Chicago. You've been through a variety of neighborhoods. Um, the fear that people talk about, particularly our students and the unrest, how real is that fear? And how do you as a mother, as a grandmother, as an educator, as a public employee, how do you as a black educator address that fear? And how do you allow your teaching um, to, to help to bring out sort of, the, sort of the righteous response in this moment? Because fear is upon us. People are afraid of losing their jobs. People are afraid of dying. Uh, people are afraid of losing their homes. And all that comes into our classroom. And you have children, you have grandchildren. I'm sure you've experienced some of this. How have your role as a public employee, as a black public employee, how do you address the fear that people are experiencing? Well, I think I, I rely on my faith in order to address that. And I, and I use that for, um, I step out on faith. And when I forget that, I remind myself that I, I believe in God. I believe in um, fear is not something of God. It's not of God. And so whenever you start feeling afraid, it's time to step back and reflect and think about what it is that you came in here for in the first place. So with my students um, and my school in general, a lot of times I have people who don't speak up. They just don't. They're afraid. Like you said, they're afraid of losing their jobs. They're afraid of their career. I do say that I'm, I'm blessed in that I have had opportunities I've changed careers. I'm a career changer. I've done 11 years in the military. I realized that wasn't for me. I went to the post office. I did 11 years there. I realized that that wasn't for me. That was my parents' job. It was a good job. I didn't take it home like I take education, but it wasn't the job for me. I'm sure it's, everybody who expecting mail on the south side of Chicago appreciate that you didn't take your didn't job take, home. I, didn't, <laughs> <laughs> I did not take it home with me. Especially the 1st and the 15th of each month. <laughs> but, you know, when you go out and you have to speak out. And so one of the things I spoke out against um, is... How do we define, how do we put the people in front of the students? What are they supposed to look like? One of the first conversations I had last year with my administration was, we need to not just put the dominant culture in front of our black children. We need to put people that look like them in front of them in, in, in certain types of classes. And so here you have the majority of black students at the school, and you have about most of the students in the IB and the a AP courses and um, all those other high-level performing courses, those teachers are white. The decision makers, the ones that decide what courses and curriculum we're going to have, were, were white. The ones who have power over the money, they were white. And so I brought these things up. And I'm not, I'm an anomaly because they're, you know, I was on the PPC at one point, and so they, hey, hey, hey. So they would come and talk to me on the side because I understand and, and I do, I am grateful because I don't live in that kind of fear. And maybe because, you know, there's a real enemy out there. So I can't be worried about because where one door closes, another one will open. I can't live in fear. I cannot not step up and not say, not speak my truth. We just had a meeting yesterday when we were talking about uh, what curriculum, MTSS. So we're trying to provide services to these students uh, and their needs and their and one of the things we talked about was having uh, overhaul of the curriculum. I suggested that 
we need to have more black curriculum, not just in the month of history, not just in the history course. And we've talked about this before. Having black history is American history. It's history and it shouldn't just be limited to one month. So in the history courses, we know how we can do that. But how does that look in other courses? And what I'm teaching, one of the things that I, I teach computer science. And so we have a project where that they use software to develop cornrows. And, and other types of you know, things so that we're bringing that culture and motivating them to let them know this, you're not just going to be a, a consumer, the end user. I want you to dream and to build and to know that you're capable. But when you have teachers in our school with master's degrees and doctorate's degrees and you're limiting them to teaching freshman level courses and you bring in teachers of the predominant culture, white culture or Asian sometimes, you bring them in, you put them in front of our AP and our IB students, and you disregard these unless they're unavailable. And if you don't speak out to that, it's going to continue to happen. So what I've done is I've, I speak out. I speak out to it, and I encourage my colleagues to do it as well. And so for those of you who may not be familiar with a PPC for non-educators, that's a professional problems committee. Um, that's a place that is built within the CTU's contract uh, where our members have an opportunity to organize and engage around a set of issues and concerns that the, the educators have in that particular school community. And our contract allows us to address those challenges. And so I want to just stay on that end for a quick second because you said something I think is actually quite powerful um, as we address fear. Um, we've often heard that students can't be what they can't see. Um, I've heard that. And here's something that's actually quite fascinating uh, because Chicago Public Schools has done an awful job um, in addressing this. And thank God for the Chicago Teachers Union and the organizing of black educators um, to help elevate um, the consciousness of this city and why black um, political thought is so necessary, um, particularly in, in a city that is hyper-stratified um, and polarized around a whole set of issues. Um, but nearly 4,000 black students um, essentially do not have access to a black teacher in their classroom. It's 4,000 black students. Now in 2001, uh, there were about 10 schools where there was no black teacher at all. And now two decades later, there are more than 60 schools without a single black teacher. Now here's the part that's troubling. troubling. Um, the number of schools with one or zero black teachers, that number has been climbing where at least one teacher is there and so since 2014. So that number was 109 in 2014. Now it's 123 schools that now um, will, may only have one or no black teacher at all. 123 schools, so in other words, uh, essentially 25% of the school district uh, fall within that category. And you know, Latanya, you mentioned something that's very powerful about students being able to see themselves in this moment. And one of the ways in which we address um, not just the fear um, of just the day-to-day -day experience, but the fear of the future. If you can't see yourself, how do you see yourself having a future? Right. And I believe like this is the type of cultural competency um, that's necessary. Um, and when you approach your administration, because something else that you said, Latanya, that is powerful. I experienced this, you all, when I started teaching 12 years ago, this is probably, you know, unheard of now. I was the only first year teacher in my building that year. 
right? Now think about how rare that is. Usually in schools, you have like 50% of the staff is brand new, right? So 12 years ago, I was the only brand new teacher in the building. So a brother got a whole lot of love. But I'll never forget the first professional development that I ever went to. If you have never been in a professional development with a principal, with a bunch of black teachers, you have missed out in life. I know Jesse Sharkey can speak to this because I believe black educators raised him too. But no matter what the principal said, like the black teachers were like, uh uh, no, no. And raise a hand, no, no, can't do it, not gonna do it, that ain't right. And that type of environment though, um, not only created stability, but it allowed the direction of the school to meet the needs of the students. It wasn't just being oppositional because this particular principal had no creativity. She wasn't innovative. She was a little tired. I think she was ready to retire. Anyhow, I love you, Ms. Woodson. God bless you on your retirement. Um, but help our listening audience understand more about when you begin to push back against administration as a black political thought. Because remember, every time black educators speak up, it is always a political conversation. If you get nothing else from this conversation, the very existence of black educators is political. The, the, the eradication and the attack against black educators is political. So how did your administration respond or, or even how did your co-workers respond to your type of pushback? Because I was mildly entertained and also felt incredibly protected. And I knew my students had advocates in black educators. But in this day and age, how was the response of your administration when you said, uh-uh, that ain't gonna work, here's what we gotta do? Uh, fear, they were afraid because I have, um, the thing about me, I, I speak my truth. And so if you've known me, I've worked on other sides of town. I've worked with black folk, I've worked with white folk, I've worked with all kinds of folk. And I tell them how I feel and I tell them whether or not I think that, uh, yeah, you are, you are, um, being pampered, you are, you know, what's the word nowadays, with uh, privileged, you're mm. privileged, and you, you're getting opportunities that, you know, you otherwise would not have. So I, I speak my truth. And so, yeah, they were very upset with the fact that I brought these things out. And one said, oh, you're being uh, racist, and you're saying these things. And I'm like, no. Because for me, my history with, um, with Morgan Park is a strong one. So I've raised my four children, three of which went through Morgan Park. One graduated, she's actually on ABC News in Lexington, Kentucky. She graduated fifth in her class from Morgan Park. So I have a long history with them from a parent perspective. I have a history with them from being, I, um, I did my student teaching there. Matter of fact, the gentleman who I was speaking of who was doing all the IB classes, he was my mentor. And I told him to his face, no, you don't get to get all this, the, the brightest, best children in the school. It's not right. It doesn't look good. It doesn't say anything to our students about what Because it's creating segregation are. even within the school. It's creating. And it's actually eliminating critical thought when we have that hyper concentration of types of students. Exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, it was a lot of pushback from them. But I tell you what they did do after a while and some thought and recognizing me that, uh, that's not who I am. I'm not trying to be racist, but I am going to keep pushing this agenda. Um, this year, for the first time, we have an AP computer science class in that school that I'm teaching. So that's I'm what's up. About that. That's right. Well, I think it goes back to this frame of the, the critical thinking and the perspective that black educators bring into a, a school community. So let's keep working our way back down to Charles. But Dr. Rideau, um, you know, 
Latanya mentioned something I think is actually um, useful, particularly of how we met. She mentioned having mentor teachers. And so when I met Dr. Rideau, Dr. Rideau was teaching at a school, and, I, and I'm going to load this question around the importance of having black mentor teachers, um, but also why, why, why are we losing black educators? Because your situation was unique. I met Dr. Rideau on the west side of Chicago, I believe at Dvorak um, uh, uh, Elementary School. And when I met Dr. Rideau, I met the entire lineage in which she was birthed out of. So I met her mentor teacher, who was Tony Mentor, and then I met Tony Mentor's teacher, who just came in tonight, by the way, uh, Dr. Kareem Beverly Bass. Y'all give Dr. Kareem Beverly Bass a round of applause. I, I said doctor because she's been teaching for like 40 years. That makes you a doctor automatically. So congratulations. But you come from this lineage of mentor teachers, black women. So um, how important was that for you as a black educator? And, and I'll address this. I want other folks to address this to, too. Why are we losing so many black teachers, though? So it's a two part. So they were vital. They were absolutely vital to me and um, really helped me to become even more of a radical educator. Usually when you come in to a space, you know, I was already radical. I already knew what I was coming in to do. Um, and they insulated me and said, that's right. When you go in your classroom, you close the door. Um, the administrator is going to tell you the things that's coming down to him and what you're going to have to do. And you're going to go in the classroom, you're going to close your door and you're going to do right by children. And so because I had that upbringing, because they trained me in that way, that is how I taught for the entire time that I was a teacher. And so they were instrumental um, in, in who I became. And when I was getting my PhD, you know, I knew that they were, again, always supporting me. They would introduce me and say, this is this is our baby. Right. And she's getting her Ph.D. And so, again, I knew that I was not only being supported, but that I was accountable to to folks to make sure that I was doing what I was supposed to do because they were looking out for me. I was family. They are still a part of my family. Absolutely. Um, and so um, it, it created also that sense of accountability of I have to get this right because there are people who have supported me and who are who are looking for me to succeed. Um, and so, again, I think the reason why we are faced with the crisis that we are now faced with is because those particular folks especially are being pushed out, right? So it's not those, even... you mean black, black older veteran experienced, teachers, particularly women. Exactly. Black experienced educators are the ones particularly being targeted because we know the power that they bring. And so there has been an intentional disruption of that because, again, not only what they bring to students, but also what they bring to teachers who are coming into the profession. So if we continually have a pipeline of people who are coming into the profession with that same kind of critical thought, who are coming in to do that same kind of transformative and political work with students, again, you have transformation. You have uprising. Right. And so I, again, believe that this has absolutely been an intentional um, these things are not happenstance. They are not incidental that, oh, we have these policies that just so happen to impact this particular population more than it does others. It is very intentional um, because they understand the amount of power that that actually brings to the profession. So we're talking about school closings that um, that disproportionately are targeting black schools, which black teachers overwhelmingly want to teach black children. So they're teaching in communities like Dr. Bordeaux taught in uh, North Lawndale on the west side of Chicago. When schools are being turned around, when schools are being privatized, when schools are being closed, 
all of this has had an impact on the decline of black educators. And, and Nina, you've obviously have been in the classroom for 24 years. Um, how bad is it getting for black educators? Um, in my, at my school, um, out of 20 teachers, 20 science teachers, we have three science teachers. Um, and then we, we don't have any uh, black history teachers. Um, and so the black population of the teachers has is, is totally been, it's on decline for sure. And, and then every time um, someone new is hired, it's, it's definitely not a black teacher. Uh, and so who's you know, being hired? Let's talk about it white teachers so it's more white teachers being hired um and i just think that um we have to go back to looking at you know what's happening in these pre-service programs you know what's going on there that's preventing um uh, more black teachers to uh being you know go through the pipeline to become teachers and and allow the mentorship you know, to happen um, before, like you said, we disappear, right? So, and I think that that's where we also need to start because that's what me and Monique were talking about before, um, where you don't have, nobody's talking about what they're doing in the pre-service programs um, and how culturally relevant uh, classes are electives, right? So then you you don't really get that teacher that comes into the school that wants to say, here's my, you know, heritage, here's who I am, and is it valued? Um, or you can, you know, be in a sense of where you're experiencing onlyness, right? So you're you're the only black teacher in the school. You're well, the has only anybody black else teacher in the class. Were you the only black educator only, in the space? In every every mm. aspect, yes. You're gonna be the only teacher in this uh meeting. You're the only teacher, then they look to you um like you represent everything about black people. And so then you become this this, you know, what do you know, what do you think about this? I'm, I'm you know, no, well, everybody should be thinking I think about you this. Need to hire more black it, it's not just me. <laughs> not just me. Everybody needs to think about this. It shouldn't just be only me, you know, or you shouldn't be looking at just me. We all need to be concerned about it. And I think that um, that's where, you know, we have to go all the way back to the pre-service teachers and, and looking at what's happening in that dynamic to prevent those, you know, students to want to be a teacher, right? So the teacher, you know, it's like bad. It's like, oh, don't become a teacher. You know, I don't know. And I'm telling my students, I said, well, what do y'all think teachers are doing? You know, this is a good profession, right? You get to reach students every day and teach, and 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 you you should be valued in the community. So I think that we also have to look at that and all of that heaviness that you feel when you're the only person there. Yeah, you know, you want to jump in before we yeah, get to Charles? Yeah, I, I want to. I say that. Um, yeah, I think that is part of it. How do they feel about teachers, and how do we embrace teachers? And when you see mayors attacking teachers and attacking teachers and governors and governors. And so both of which are gone. That doesn't Thank make you. you want to join in. It's just like anything else. If you are living in a community and a person that's educated, they're living next to you and they're they're just having such a hard life. And yet this what looks glamorous is somebody that's selling drugs or doing some other illicit things, those things look just as good to you when you're young as the person because they're living next to each other. You can't tell the difference. And when you get to an educator and you're talking about a person that's being in an abusive relationship, because oftentimes that's what we're in, abusive relationships, and you say, well, you always told me not to be in an abusive relationship, so why would I want to go and be an educator? So, (laughs) I mean, those are some of the things we need to consider also. So I want to get Charles in this conversation. I'm going to open this up to all of you on the panel. And then 
Um, this last question that's going to be open up to the entire panel. I know there are some questions that are already coming. I know one of our sisters in the back wants to jump in this conversation. Uh, but Charles, I don't even know where to start because by the time we got to that other end, now we're back. There's like 18 questions that I want to ask you. Um, you know, but I, I think the 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 first one that I would just ask, just you know, your perspective around is we know who's attacking black educators, right? We've we've covered that tonight. Um, and whether it's been within the political frame or the business frame, we know why they are attacking us um, to come after our political power. But something that I think you bring to this conversation is actually quite useful is the pushback and the response and the organizing around protecting our black schools, i.e. protecting our black educators. From an organizer's perspective, um, what does this fight mean to you when we talk about Black Lives Matter, the Black Youth Project, um, what does this fight mean for you as a black organizer around the pushback against white supremacy, school closings, turnaround, school privatization, the pushback, but not just the pushback, but for the need for our schools to reflect the political power that we need to build. In other words, having black educators in front of black students, having black educators in front of white students, in front of brown students. What does that organizing mean in this moment? Um, it's critical. Uh, it's necessary. I think CTU is on the right side of history um, in terms of like pushing for that black critical thought. Um, as you said, like we know who's attacking, um, but it's important to like resist it at in in any instance that we can. You start at, at, at the ground zero, you start with your classroom. I look at classrooms, you say like as families, but that's a community. Each student has a family, each student has someone they go home to. Yeah, I, I see people and I see communities. Um, I'm reminded of this one teacher, a black, black woman who would, uh, her days at the school would extend beyond you know, the, the, the hours given, the regular hours given. So like before school, she's um, texting certain mothers of students and whatnot, um, really being supportive of black mothers and black fathers who are going through things or like incarceration happens, all types of different living exp lived experiences and situations. Um, and black teachers are a resource to black families. I, I, I don't even see a separation between the black family and the black teachers because black teachers have black families. And so like the issues that are affecting our communities inherently affects black teachers and what the governments do with these neoliberal policies is that they very, very like sinisterly amplify the oppression that we have already been facing and already been undergoing students and teachers. And so like, we're not just like scratch the labels. This, this is black people being attacked. And so like what we see is the education arena as an opportunity to organize. And it's always been the place to organize. When, like if you look at um, how black studies got into college campuses, it was from like black students organizing, taking sit-ins and doing direct actions within their uh, individual institutions. And so like, that is the type of urgency, like this is a crisis, so like, let's act urgent about it. What is the alternative? If we don't, we, we see the trend, we see it constantly decrease. And I'm looking at this, uh, <laughs> this book and it's talking about like segregation in Chicago and I, I, from like 1920 to like 2016, and the fact that like 
they have maintained that the black population doesn't really move past the South Loop in this city for a century. That's crazy. This is urban planning. And so like these there are sinister individuals behind these policies that say that black teachers don't need to be in front of black students. Let's call they out. We're talking about the Rahm Emanuel's of the world, the Mike Bloomberg's of the world, the Bruce Rauner's of the world, the Chris Christie's of the world, the people who work with Mike Zuckerberg, which was um, uh, Cory Booker, um, who conspired with Chris Christie um, to 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 separate black families, essentially. And for those of you who are tuning in, the book that uh, Charles is referencing, why don't you go ahead and reference? This is a UIC. So, study. yeah, it's from the Institute for Research on Race and Policy Between the Great Migration and Growing Exodus, the Future of Black Chicago. But, yes, again, to your point, um, these are local matters. And I think now we're in a moment where we are talking about national politics a lot. Um, we still have to draw attention to home. What is wrong with Chicago? What is wrong with the wards? What is wrong in our school districts? That, that is where the fight needs to be. No matter the label, you can organize anywhere. My great grandma, my grandma been organizing in the church. They go to church, that's where they organize, that's where they stake their flag. They're gonna make sure certain policies and they go to all the meetings, they're gonna make sure certain policies get handled. They're gonna make sure they're pushing for youth voice within the church, that's what they do. If you're a teacher you're, or you, you use the classroom, that's, that's where it's at. Like a teacher made this mind of mine to where I'm critical and want to organize with people in my community. So in other words, black educators, again, we encourage students to ask questions and not just simply answer. It's a practice that I've been doing in my home and I've created some critical thinkers and it's a much generation than the generation that my father raised uh, because my kids have all kind of questions. And trust me, uh, it's a new black day because I, I am the new black because my kids have all kind of questions. And sometimes I do want to revert back to how my daddy used to do it. Well, I think what's really happening, too, is that we, we do do a lot of talking and a lot of marching and a lot of that. But where are the concrete solutions that we're going to mobilize and say, here, here are some concrete solutions. What is going to be done to help increase uh, the black educators in Chicago public schools um, so that when I retire, I, I won't be, you know, there will just be two people left there. Right. So then it's like, what what's going to be some concrete solutions um, to make sure that we have black educators in, in every facet of the school um, and not just in certain areas, you know, you know, this we got our black quota here and that's enough. So I think that it's time to stop talking and, and tr- time to say, here are the solutions. These are the things that we want to work on and, and then put some action towards that and not having another committee or whatever, a discussion about it. What's going to be done to make sure that I'm not the last chemistry teacher, black chemistry teacher or IB teacher, because I actually taught IB. Um, so yeah, IB teacher, AP teacher, right? So I've taught everything. Auntie, but, yeah. big sister. Right, so right, that's actually right. the final question that yeah. I have, because it really is about building political power. But how do we push a racist system like the Chicago Public Schools, a racist um, um, system that has protected the ruling class in this city for a very long time, you know, one of the things that strikes me, though, um, that 
you had the uh, a black mayor resistant to the political uh, fight that this union has been leading. Um, and so there are a couple of demands um, that the Chicago Teachers Union put forward um, that the leadership of the city of Chicago, uh, Lori Lightfoot forced us to forego paychecks um, in order to secure economic, racial, and social justice. And some of the things that Charles referenced, um, which I think is important that we actually won in our contract and the impact that these wins will have on black educators in particular, uh, but the protection and the expansion of sustainable community schools. Charles, you mentioned that, yeah, that's worthwhile clapping for, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Sustainable community schools because you mentioned that our schools, and Nina said this, um, obviously Dr. Rideau, Latanya mentioned it, that our schools are our communities. And so when we're fighting for sustainable community schools, it's about keeping control and power in the hands of the people who live and make up the dynamic nature of our neighborhoods. And why you would have a mayor resistant to sustainable community schools um, still baffles me. Um, because of what it means for black folks. When you think about the sustainable community schools model and the number of black students that will have access to additional services and dollars where that school community can direct those dollars and who they hire, which of course we want them to hire black folks. Um, here's another one. We fought um, to increase the pipeline uh, with Grow Your Own which is an intentional program to attract black educators, particularly our paraprofessionals who are overwhelmingly black women, brown women, into the teaching force. That's another big deal. How about this? Veterans pay. I'm understanding that we actually just won officially um, secured steps and security for veteran pay. Um, and that's gonna be a big deal for black women who overwhelmingly make up the dynamic nature of our veteran teachers. And so as the CTU fights to secure these demands within our contract, we have to resist and fight even those who, who swear that they believe in equity and justice. How do you have a black mayor that says that she wants to address poverty, but somehow mad when black folks want to get a raise? If you want to address poverty, how about increasing the freaking W-2s in the city of Chicago so that black people can actually work? That's how you address poverty, by hiring black people and giving them a livable wage, right? And so the question that I have, and any one of you can just jump in, this is my last question, we're gonna go to the audience, is what should black educators and what should our city, our union, what should we do as a whole in this moment to secure black political power, particularly within the teaching force? What should we do in this moment? Nina's gonna start, go ahead. Well, I think um, um, in terms of Chicago Public Schools, the elephant in the room is racism, right? So um, they have a lot of webinars, you know, that you have to complete. And maybe um, that's that's one webinar we need to, to start, right? So a webinar on, you know, uh, racism and historically what's happened in Chicago with, you know, black families and things of that nature and microaggressions, right, that we experience daily, 
right? So students are experiencing it, teachers are experiencing it. So that's something that we have to uh, talk about. And it can't be just this hidden thing and that nobody sees because we're all thinking that we've arrived and we have this equity. Because if I hear that word one more time, <laughs> I think I'm going to pass out. So, I, you know, it's like equity, equity. We're talking about equity. I'm like, well, what, what's your, your version of equity? You know, so I think that we also have to come to a common uh, idea about what does equity really look like in Chicago? And are you really trying to achieve that at these schools? Um, and also, like you said, how do we have a black mayor? Um, well, they call that, you know, you don't, it, it necessarily don't mean the phenotype doesn't mean that the person is going to agree, right? So we've all internalized racism, right? So we also have to rethink and, 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 and decolonize our minds um, so that we can uh, start thinking about ways that we've also carried the torch um, and penalized students and did certain things to keep students at a marginalized place. So I think that that's one thing that we could do. Definitely uh, start, get a webinar going on racism, you know, so people will know what we're experiencing as, as black educators, that I'm not just teaching chemistry. I'm also listening to students and I'm advocating for students uh, on things that I shouldn't have to advocate for them for. I shouldn't have to encourage students to take high level courses. They should already know that they are qualified to take it. You know, so I, I just always and then the whole stigma about taking classes. You have to have all these certain things to take a class. You know, where did that even come from? Because it doesn't come from the college board. So we also got to think about why are these things in place to further um, segregate um, students and teachers from being AP teachers or IB teachers. And I think that that's definitely something um, that we can think about. Go ahead, Latanya. To go along with that, I agree with everything you said. But I also think that put the money where that mouth is, you know, Mm -hmm. because that's what they pay attention to. So Teachers, principals oftentimes, and that's, you know, the grassroots level is at the school. Principals oftentimes pay attention to the bottom line, the SQRPs, the things that's going to get them um, another contract. And so if we put scores and we put money and we put value into these equity things, whereas how are your black teachers doing? Are they being allowed to teach these certain types of classes. Oh, they haven't taught this. What kind of degrees do they have? This one has a master's degree and they've never taught this level of a class. Oh, well, we're going to bring you down. We're going to bring your SQRP down. And so when we start making the principals and the schools accountable for uh, what they offer teachers and the incentives that they have for retention. So you're losing all your black teachers. Oh, well, then you can't be a one plus school and you have no black teachers. How's that happen? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Charles, Dr. Bordeaux. Um, I think also on on even just state and nationally, we have to get away from this standardized movement. Um, if we have a system that is inherently racist and biased, And then we're building on that system. So that is the way we're assessing how good our schools are. That's how we're assessing how good um, our students are. Then we're going to have disparities, period, because it's designed that way. And so I think, again, one of the things that we can do is to get away from that. So one of the things that happened during Race to the Top, during the Obama administration, 
was that schools or districts had to do certain things in order to get access to that money. They had to show that they were being innovative, right, which meant basically opening up more charter schools. They had to show that they were that they were changing their teacher evaluation systems to be in line with these these standardized test scores. So now that we see the damage and the faultiness of those things. Let's do the opposite. We're going to give federal money to the ones who are disinvesting in standardized testing, to the ones who are getting rid of or taking out standardized test scores out of teacher evaluations. So the same way it moved in that direction, we can reverse it and move it back. So, again, I think we need to have um, local ideas, but we also need to make sure that this is also a state and a national issue because we're facing the same issues um, on a state and national level as well. So we have to get rid of, in my opinion, these um, inherently racist systems of standardizing outcomes, but not standardizing inputs. Yeah, I'm in agreement. I think uh, in order for um, progress to happen, things have to be abolished. Some things we have to rid of completely. The way we understand capitalism is that it is unrelenting. And that uh, whenever you create reforms for capitalism, the reforms that you fight for in capitalism adapts to it and keeps going. And so, like, in order for us to prevent that and, um, you know, uh, create something that is transformative, things do have to be abolished. And I think looking at standardization is, is one thing. Wow. Let's give it up for the panel, you all, one more time. So there are a bunch of smart questions that are coming in from our live stream. We have a bunch of smart questions that are um, in our live studio audience. I just want um, to direct your attention uh, to this billboard over here because I think it's, uh, it's a real important note here. And a, really a shout out to the Chicago Teachers Union's research department. Can you all just give them a round of applause? We actually have one of them in the room. Uh, Pavlin Jankoff is in the room, you all. Uh, Pavlin, can you just wave? or shake your hair because you got that nice ponytail, uh, whatever. But Pavlin, come on, y'all, man, that's Pavlin. Pav. And if you, you've recognized that the school, because this actually comes up in one of the questions about this, people, are, if you're not familiar, the SBB or the school-based budgeting um, has reinforced uh, racism um, within our schools, the south and west side of Chicago, because basically you have a cluster of um, schools with these very, very small, petite budgets. And of course, they are majority black neighborhoods on the south and west sides. And of course, these clusters where there's um, um, sort of inundated with resources and funding, of course, those schools um, are on the north side or in the wider sections of the city of Chicago. Um, But one of the questions, and this is how we'll do it for the panel, um, if someone wants to weigh in on this particular question, jump in. Um, If somebody else wants to weigh in on it, you can, Uh, but we'll, we'll try to keep it to one or two responses because we have about 20 minutes or so before we have to go off the air here. Um, and so we want to get enough time to get to as many questions as possible. So this is where the conversation started. So I think it's appropriate to start with this question. Um, this question is coming from the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, and they want to know, um, you know, there is, there is no health without mental, without mental health. I agree with that. But the question is, how do we get families to accept a mental health condition support group? In other words, you have a lot of people living with mental disorders. And so this is obviously coming from a black perspective. You know, how do we get families to accept um, the mental strain um, that they are already articulating, but really to help get them to get the support that they need with it? 
Because something I think often gets lost, and I know Dr. Rodeau and I tease a lot about teaching middle school students, but there is a mental health condition called depression that many people don't identify as a mental health issue. Oh, I'm just feeling a little sad, I'm feeling a little down. Like depression is actually real. So how do we as black educators um, help families accept that mental health, um, without it, you're not healthy, and to get the support that they need to become healthy? So I think that that's a part of what black educators bring, right? Um, the fact that we have those and can build those kind of relationships, they are more likely to take that help and support from us than from some other source because we, we racism is all encompassing. We see it in the healthcare system. We see it in education. We see it in economics. We see it within the legal system. So there have been within the healthcare system, you, you know, our, our people have not been done right. And so one, we need to have mental health supports in our schools so then we would be able to direct them directly to services that are right there within the school, within the community. So I think, again, having black educators have that conversation with black families and understanding and knowing that relationship can actually help to break down some of the stigma that uh, mental health issues actually have within our communities. But again, we have to have access to the resources. We have to be able to point them to somewhere in order to get the help. So that's why we're fighting for social workers, counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists to be in the schools. But I think to a deeper point that there's a trust factor. And so when a black educator says, yo, you know, these feelings that you're having, um, it's not unusual, um, but there's support. And I'm going to take I'm going to walk alongside to get you the professional support that you need. Anyone else? We got a new counselor, a new black counselor just got to our school. And so I'm very excited about that. And so um we have organizations in there. There's a woman called Working on Womanhood and, and uh, Becoming a Man. So those are two different organizations that are in the school right now, which is really uh, a good place for us to start. And so when you have these conversations with students about their needs, I've pulled students to the side. I've had parents to come up and talk to them about because, like you said, I've got this history of my own children and the community they lived in, and I, and I know what when you need mental health services you know we all have a sense of that we can see it you know the difference between normal teenage behavior and something that's really abnormal so we don't know I don't know why it is and I've shared this with parents I don't know why your child is acting the way that they are but they need some sort of special support I don't know if there's a death in the family there's monetary issues there's a homelessness issue there's something going on with that child and Coming from, I think, a black educator, like we said before, I think it made it a lot easier for that parent to receive what I had to say. And and gratefully, we had then we have a counselor that's now in the building so that not just telling you what they need, but the services are there and then they can move from there. They might take additional you know, help outside of there, but at least that gets them started. But I think to your point that there is this distrust that black families have had. Yes. And as black educators, we can actually help provide the type of support that's needed. Charlie, well, I mean, we know our history. We know how many tests have been done on us in the that's medical right. field. And so we we are afraid of that. And then a lot of us have been overprescribed with Ridlin and everything else. And so we have a distrust. Yeah, we, we need black people in front of mental health. And I also think that there should be far more mental health professionals in school than actual cops. Right. How about that? <laughs> yes. Um, 
but again, this also port, uh, points to like the priorities of the city. Like the city has a history of closing mental health clinics. So what does that say about how they feel about mental health where you close like half the city's mental health clinics, but you have no problem supporting the police budget every year? That's only going to reflect in the education system. That's the priorities of the city. And so there, there, I think there's two answers there. Yes, we have to like build that trust within our communities about mental health, given the black history uh, and experimentation on black bodies. But then we also have to deal with the fact that you have mayors and aldermen who aren't prioritizing mental health in their wards, their communities and neighborhoods at all. So they'll come out, they'll lecture when a mass shooting takes place. They'll lecture when there's a killing. They'll lecture when there's violence and crime. But then they don't come behind that and say, look, here's how we can how we treat it. So here's another question I think is important. Um, I, I don't want to put Nina on the spot here, um, but I, I think anyone can answer this. But I, I do want to uh, provoke this with you just a little bit, because if folks are not aware of this, but at the de- height of the decline of black educators, where at one point I believe we were about 45 percent of the teaching force in the city of Chicago. And now we're down to 20, 21 percent. But here's the thing that's actually fascinating. I'm not sure if this number has changed much, but 50 percent of the principals are black. And so this question is explain (laughs) how is it possible to have black principals um, um, at the height of when black teachers were being lost? So in other words, can you explain how black principals were being used to attack black teachers at the workplace? And if you can't answer this, if someone else can to, to offer this, but at least there is a reality, though. You have black principals, the increase of black principals at the same time, a decline of black Educators. So one, perhaps how is that possible? Maybe perhaps you can answer that. And then the follow-up question to that, um, are black principals being used to attack black teachers? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, Nina, you don't have to answer that question, but no, go ahead. <laughs> I think that um, what, what happens is that at, when, I, when I first started teaching, um, um, t- veteran teachers were actually valued and um, you you actually kind of look to the veteran teacher to um, you know for guidance, and I think that it, uh, when the decline started is where it's like you know we need some new ideas, we need this, we need that, and so now and apparently you know, only new ideas can come from white people. Apparently, so we we're gonna have a a transition where it was just a period of time where um, your your voice. As a veteran teacher, it, it didn't matter um, what you knew, what you had experienced. And so I think that the devalue of the veteran teacher, that that kind of pushed, you know, us, you know, black teachers out the system, too, because, you know, if no, nobody values what you're saying and how you're teaching, um, then how are you going to, you know, get more people in? Right. So I think that that's one one of the reasons why the decline, you know, definitely happened where when you first started teaching, you're like, oh, my God, you know, there's, you know, the, the department chair is black and then we get 10 black teachers, you know, so then you're like all excited. And then after a while, then it's like just three people or one. So then it's like, OK, now what's going on? And so then you don't have that value anymore for, you know, my knowledge. Right. Uh, Twenty four years in. You don't value like what I'm saying because you know whatever the strategies I've learned, they 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 don't matter now in this new this new society that we're making. So I think that that's that's something that definitely is taking place. 
So anybody don't take a step, are black principals being used? I think we already answered that question, yes. But how are they doing that and how is that allowed and why are they using black? When I say they, the system, Chicago Public Schools, i.e. the fifth floor, to essentially attack black educators. Well, that, that's always gone on. You know, I'm reminded of uh, that movie Django, Samuel Jackson's character. I'm sorry, but that's what they do. They, they put a black person in front to be the, uh, the whipper and they get the people in shape. And so that's, that's what they do. They, you want to get, if, <laughs> let me bring it back down a little bit. No, look, sister, I don't, actually don't think you have to bring it back down. That's the whole point of this conversation, right? Let me bring it back down. Right? If we can't be honest and direct and candid here, where else can we be? Well, we and you're get... safe. You're at the Chicago Teachers Union. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is exactly what I'm saying. You know, they, they do this. They put these people in charge and they want to they, they use them to get people in check. And if you want to rise, you must step on other people that look like you. You have to step on black people. You got to yes. step on black people to because rise. you want to be. And then it's like you want to be the only black person in the room. Sometimes we don't think there's room at the top for everybody. And so we oppress our own people thinking that, well, if I get rid of you, then, then maybe I can rise a little higher. Charles, you're not in your head. You're saying, yeah, when she said there's there's this need to be the only black person in the room that seemed to resonate. Yeah, that's all over the place. That's like corporate America. Like some people like even thrive on the fact that they are looked upon as like representing the entire race. And the fact that they can be that like that middle man between the the oppressor, I guess, and the oppressed. They like to maintain that position because they know like this it's rewarding. Um, but the only way to combat it I know of is organization. You know, teachers need to rally around each other if a principal is coming down on them. I thought he should have got a bigger amen than that. Right, he said right. teachers should rally around one another to protect ourselves. That is the whole point of unionism. And let me just, here's a, 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 just a message uh, to all black people. If you're the only black person in the room and decisions are being made, black people are in trouble. Run and go get help, all right? <laughs> get help quick. Uh, because that's an incredible burden. Even if you have good intentions, it is difficult to be the only black person in the room to protect the interests of our people. White supremacy has done a number on this country. And so, you know, the thing that jumps out, though, at me is that sort of these contradictions that we experience um, as black educators, because we know administering a standardized test in and of itself, we are carrying out the, the behavior of the oppressor. And so here's a question that I think is actually pretty provocative. It says, how can black educators effectively advocate for children against standardized tests, zero tolerance, um, the lack of diversity, racism, while also trying um, essentially to protect your profession in your personal space? Um, and that is a real conflict, right? Because you need your W-2 as a black educator. I know when I've knocked on doors, I mean, this is just a fascinating experience that I've had as an organizer. Um, and those of folks who have been through the Organizing Institute at the Chicago Teachers Union, and you knock on an educator's door and there's a black woman that comes to the door. It's a two flat or a three flat where her mother and her sister lives upstairs. 
There's another family that lives, you know, in the bottom unit. And that black woman is holding it down for that three flat in the rest of the block. Am I making this up? Like, this is like black Chicago, right? Or you knock on a door and the you know you're going to the teacher's door because the rest of the block looks like it needs some investment or at least more black teachers on that block. And so we have a responsibility to protect our homes and advocate for our community. And so how do we as black educators push back against zero tolerance and the racist policies that are being moved while at the same time protecting our profession. You just have to navigate the space, you know, and I think once you develop the relationship with your students and you have those real conversations with them, um, then that becomes, you know, the organizing piece, right? So that you've made the connection to them. They know you went through the struggle, you know, and you tell them your story, you're transparent. Um, and you know about, you know, systematic racism and that, yes, you're in a school right now that's predominantly black. But if you are going to go to college, you're going to experience a totally different environment. And I need to prepare you for this um, because you're, you know, a few years ago at DePaul, they were putting Nazi signs on the you know ground and everything was happening. And a lot of the students go there. So you guys you have to prepare them for the fight because it's going to be a fight, not just at the school. It's going to be a fight if they do choose to go to college. It's going to be a fight. It's going to be a fight just to get a job because you may have to change your name just to get a job because if they look at your name, they won't even call you for an interview because they can identify you as black, just how your name looks, or as Latino, just what your name is. So I think that we we have to tell students um, what's happening, but also um, be willing to listen to their stories and, and answer their questions because they'll ask you, what do you think, what's, what's happening here? You know, what's, what do you think about this, Ms. Ike? You know, what are you thinking? And so I, I have to tell them what I'm really thinking, right? So I can't fake it. So I have to be real with them and tell them what I'm really thinking. And so then that's when the partnership, that's when the community develops. And that's when the students are like, you know, we say they're going to ride out with you. Um, and you won't um, have to be worried and concerned about your W-2 um, because they see that you're teaching them about how to um, be resilient. And then also you're giving them high quality education and you're holding them to a high standard um, and you're not going to not teach them certain topics. You're going to teach them all the topics. Right. So you're going to expect excellence from all of your students. And I think that that's definitely um, something that um, teachers are doing in the classrooms Dr. when they close their doors. And go ahead, Latanya. And then, Dr. Rodeau, I want you to weigh in on this one as well, uh, because I, I believe what Nina is effectively saying to this question is, you got to do both, right? You got to organize a community um, that the attacks against public education, again, it's a political attack against the neighborhood. But Latanya, go ahead. And I just want to just think that you also need to make sure that you keep your own training up, you know, professional development. Oftentimes you get to schools and, and you're not even given the professional development that you should have. So you have to get with an organization outside of your school to make sure you keep your skills, to make sure you're still uh, viable in your area, in your content area, and if you want to be, move up. And, and you, you demonstrate to students by showing them, by being that advocate, by speaking up for yourself and doing things for yourself. And, you know, doing is the best trainer, I think. I think it same thing at home. You know, you want your kids to do something, they have to see you do it. You want your students to do something, 
they've got to see you do it. If you're sitting there, you're quiet, you're shy, you're not saying anything, and people are kicking you in the teeth, they're going to be like, well, I'm not going to say anything or do anything either. So. And Dr. Bordeaux, that's essentially what you were alluding to earlier in this conversation about not just modeling, but how the students begin to reflect um, back the teaching that you begin to deliver, where they begin to challenge systems. But I think this point about how do we protect our profession and speak out against the white supremacist ideology that's being moved, that requires organizing well beyond the classroom. Absolutely. And so that was what I was, that was my take. Um, is that this this requires organizing with students, with also parents, because they can't fire parents, mm-hmm. right? They can't fire students. And so that was always um, what, what I looked to. I was um, part of the opt-out movement. My students opted out um, in large numbers for ISAT the last year that ISAT was there and then also the next years. Um, and so... And for but, opting out, just what, what does that mean? So opting out of the test, actually not taking um, one of the summative exams, one of the many um, tests that that students have to take at the end of the year. I taught seventh and eighth grade, so my students were already taking tests in order to get into, that would determine whether they were able to get into selective enrollment schools. They already had to take the test. If it said that they could at least apply to the selective enrollment schools, then they had to actually then take the test to see if they could get into the selective enrollment school. And so they were just tested tested and tested. And so we were strategic, though, because we did understand that a lot of our students do want to go to those schools because they have more resources. And so understanding that, but also saying, okay, are there some tests, though, that are lower hanging fruit that they're just telling you you have to take, but that really have no um, meaning or they they're really not worth much or worth anything. Can we opt out in large numbers regarding those tests? So I think we have to be, and we've always been strategic in our organizing. We have to all, we have to be able to navigate the system. We have to be able to economically sustain ourselves. Absolutely. But at the same time, we're not navigating for the point of assimilation. We're navigating so that we can get in position to make things implode when we get into certain positions. Right. And so I think again, that that is the point, Um, of organizing and that we also have to make sure that we're organized as teachers because, again, they can't fire all of us. So if we all stand up, they can't fire us all. And also making sure that we have the backing of parents and also students because they can't get rid of them either. So one or two of us, yes, they can pick us off. But together, we will be a stronger force. Totally agree with that. I think um, it's also knowing the limits of your voice and power um, in and outside the classroom. if you're inclined to be an advocate, know the limits and reach of your of, of, of your power. I want to think back to like when I was at CSU and we was organizing to save the school um, and how we even got to that point. It was the fact that like some administrators, you know, sat us down, student leaders on campus and basically told us, hey, the school is going to close in March. What y'all going to do? This was unbeknownst to their superiors and everything. But it shows you like. You have to be able to like operate within the shadows. You have to be able to be honest with students, but also know the limits of your power. They couldn't go around the school, you know, telling people the school is going to close, but they knew the students they can talk to. They knew the parents they can talk to, uh, community individuals and leaders. And they impressed it upon the students who they knew they was going to do something about it, who were, who were going to think about it. And they already developed a relationship with. And so I think it's really important to be able to discern what battles you choose and the limits of your power. So, mm. so we, we are just about out of time here. 
Um, but I have time for just about maybe another question, maybe two. Um, and to this point here, I'll, I'll just read it, though I, I, I think it's more of an idea than a question. Um, but to your point about Chicago State, um, this question is coming from our live stream. Um, can we force the city to tax private university endowments and then use that revenue to provide free scholarships for Chicago Public Schools graduates to attend Chicago State University to become teachers? Absolutely freaking yes, yeah, right? Absolutely. Um, and so, so I, I appreciate the folks who are uh, listening on, on Facebook and watching us. Uh, because, look, I think someone yeah, said this on the panel right. earlier, that this is going to require um, um, a multi-pronged approach here. And it's going to pr- uh, re- require a great deal of investment. And so when I think about um, movements that have transformed this country, you've had an organizing strategy, you had an electoral strategy, you had a legal strategy. And so for those of you uh, who may not be aware, but we actually have a lawsuit um, against the Chicago Public Schools, um, that the racist policies of school closings and turnarounds have had a disparate impact on black educators. And we've been in the battle uh, field for, these, for, the, for this lawsuit for some time. And I appreciate the leadership of the Chicago Teachers Union and all the organizing that has gone on um, over the last several years um, to push back against school privatization and turnarounds that have caused like this tremendous um, uproar, quite frankly, um, in our communities uh, because... Um, without the type of critical thought, the type of black liberation curriculum um, that all of these folks up here um, have participated in, have been a part of, who are fighting for. Without that, we're losing a generation of the next critical political leaders. And political leadership is not confined to an elected office. In fact, um, political leadership is is far more effective, to be quite frank with you, um, in the role of as educators and organizers. Um, and so here's, I think, will be just a very final question. I'm going to take sort of the moderator's privilege and try to rework this question a little bit um, because part of this question, I think, speaks to um, the challenges that we have. I think, Charles, you alluded to this about some of the limitations that we have. And I think that's a, a reality that we have to speak to. Um, whenever you talk to some of the old school folks who've been a part of the movement, um, they will tell you everybody and their mama said they were on that Edmund Pettus Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you meet folks, they say, I was in Market Park, right with Dr. King. Right, everybody, you marched with Dr. King, uh, you marched with Karen Lewis, Jackie Vaughn, <laughs> right? You know, they've done it all. But we know as organizers, in many instances, it's a handful of us. And I remember when we were fighting against the school closings and we were fighting against the school actions in North Lawndale in particular. And we had to load up a couple of buses on a Tuesday night for an 8 o'clock hearing. Right? Think about how inconvenient that was. And we loaded that buses with teachers parents, a handful of students, and we went down there with our signs, and no one was confused about what the outcome would be. But they were also very clear that we are always better off having fought and lost versus having lost and never fight, right? And I think that's an important part about this because even as we push for Medicare for all, we preach for affordable housing, um, this is a part of the Black Liberation Movement, right? It was Fred Hampton that said every child should be able to eat before they go to school. And now every child in, the Amer- in America have access to free lunch and free breakfast. It was Fred Hampton that opened up black clinics and said hire black doctors, right? It was the Fred Hampton black liberation ideology um, that caused Reverend Jackson to run on the single-payer healthcare system in 1988. 
Um, and so that movement, of course, um, we're seeing the fruit of that. Um, but here's this final question. Um, the question is, how is it possible to have a union um, that has a race analysis that is clear about raising the black consciousness of, of black America, while at the same time losing black educators? And I think it's important that we just sort of answer this question, but also if you all can just put your closing thoughts to really push, like even though we have experienced loss at this moment, because many of the policies that we're harmed by now, you know, go back to 1995, right, is when we really begin to see like the attack against public accommodations. And for some of us on the panel, we were still in high school. I think Monique might have been in second grade or something like that, um, or third grade. <laughs> um, but though we're raising the consciousness within this union, we're still experiencing some losses. So we'll start with you, Latanya. How do we make sure in this moment that though we're experiencing some loss, that we're still moving, uh, if I'll use the football analogy, we're still moving the ball down the field? How do we continue to do that, even though we still got people tackling us, blocking us, saying we can't have an elected school board, we can't have our bargaining rights, you know, you can't hire black educators, they're fighting us for pay, sustainable community schools. How do we continue as black educators to move the ball down the field, even when we're being attacked? We just have to do it. We just have to do it incrementally. I mean, you know, it'd be nice when you have those you want to say the football term, you've got the people that can run far or you could throw fast and you can get it across. That's great. But each time we have to keep moving incrementally if that's, if that's what it takes. We have to move. We have to be present. And sometimes we get so caught up in what's, uh, what we want in the future that we don't stay present. And sometimes that's when they close the local schools. We got to stay present in our schools. We got to stay present and diligent where we are. You've got a certain area of influence that you have. And if each of us stay local to our area of influence and each one teach one, they're coming after the union because the union is talking about equality. And so we have to keep supporting our union, keep advocating for these choices. And we need our white colleagues to be a part of this conversation too. I mean, they were also a part of the civil rights movement and everything else. And so it's not an exclusion of them, it's inclusive of them, but we all need to be speaking with one voice and speaking continuously. Dr. Rideau? We also have to make sure that it's a multi-pronged effort. And I think we've talked about that before. So while we might lose a legal battle, we don't put all our eggs in that basket. We know the legal system was not meant for us as well, right? And so we always keep fighting and on all of these different levels. We fight it legally. We fight it in our schools every day by organizing our parents, organizing our communities, organizing our students. We fight it in all of these different efforts. And so while we might lose some, we're going to win in other spaces. And so I think, again, that's how we keep inching forward by making sure that we're never putting all of our eggs, like I said, in that one basket, but that we are continually fighting on multiple fronts. Nina? I think that um, the students are definitely key in this and and really unveiling um, the hidden mechanisms that go on to, you know, keep the systematic racism going and, and knowing knowing who the oppressor is and naming the oppressor and then actually trying to find concrete solutions that they can then say, you know, this is what I need to do. So I think the students coming um, through your, you know, 
the school system, um, if we help them organize and help them say, well, why is this happening? Um, you know, being a critical thinker, having a critical consciousness and saying that we need to understand why is it that Chicago is going through this and it's, this is not new. Right. This is a cycle that's been happening over and over again so um, that they can understand and um, then they can then help uh, with the fight. So I think that us, you know, telling students what's going on and and um, empowering them, that that is definitely uh, one of the ways to um, help move the system. Um, well, I think it's all about staying principled. Uh, and also questioning your values and, and your fundamentals. Is black consciousness raising a part of CTU's values? I think constantly asking that question um, fortifies your, your fight. Um, also, like taking losses, taking L's is a part of movements. That's what happens. That's how you learn from mistakes. But that's not an anomaly when it comes to certain movements, like the civil rights movement. We can talk about the arrests the people who've bled, the people who've, uh, you know, dedicated their lives and souls to the movement who aren't no who are no longer here. I think that, uh, yeah, it goes to really being principled, like how important is this to you? And also putting down steps that will fortify you for the future, because it's all about the future. So even though you're not seeing wins in a certain duration doesn't mean that you aren't taking the steps it takes for another young person, youth organizer to come in, see what you're doing and continue that path. Just because you don't see liberation in your lifetime doesn't mean that liberation is not possible. Charles, Nina, Monique, Latanya, come on y'all, make them feel good. And thank you so much uh, for your leadership, for your consciousness, elevating the conversation. And one more time for our live studio audience, give yourselves a round of applause for hanging in there with us tonight. And for those of us um, who've been listening to us on social media, we thank you for that work. Thank you to the work of the Chicago Teachers Union. Just a real quick shameless plug. Continue to support CTU Speaks. Uh, Jim and Andrew do a fabulous job. Of course, uh, if you want to continue this conversation and conversations like this, you can tune in to Sunday mornings on Progressive Talk Radio, WCPT, 820 AM, where I am the host of that show, along with Candace Castile. Um, I think the bottom line is this, you all, building political consciousness and building out the consciousness to bring about black liberation is the fight and will always be the fight. Dr. Key made it very clear, the labor movement, civil rights that movement together has enormous potential. Let's not allow the white supremacy that continues to attack the black consciousness and the black political power of our time to get away. Um, and so in order for us to build that power, we have to continue to organize with a great deal of urgency, continue to speak truth to power in your classrooms, in your school communities. As Charles said, wherever you are, whether it's in the church, the mosque, whatever groups you're a part of, Organize, organize, organize. Happy Black History Month, Black History Year. Let's continue to fight. God bless you. We love you. Peace. 